Thought Lounge podcast. A Thought Lounge is an in-person, formatted dialogue with three to six people on the topics they are most passionate about. This week's special guest is UCLA professor of history, James Galvin. Participants and topics of this Thought Lounge include Matthew Huang on Will Humans Ever Be Content in Nature? Professor Galvin on the ISIS Crisis? Miggy Bettencourt on Kindness? Rivka Cohen on Everyone is a Little Bit Psychopathic, and Axel Kramer on The Cut Manifesto. To skip to a particular topic of your interest, read the description below and see when it starts. For more information on Thought Lounge, please visit thoughtlounge.org. Enjoy! Okay, so I was watching the um, nature documentary Planet Earth the other day, and I noticed that each animal is like very specifically adapted to its own niche, right? It evolved in a certain way to fill a certain role in the environment. So then like, yeah, there are some that are more optimally adapted, but um, as a whole, they're just looking for um, their kind of place in the world and they're driven by changes that are driven by nature. Now humans, on the other hand, I've noticed are the only other species that um, are the only species that really drives for their own advancement. They, um, we make changes to the environment based on what we want to see rather than adapt to the circumstances that we're given. So we always want to make things um, faster, more efficient, and we want to find better ways to use our resources. So innovation, as I see it, is the driving force behind society, but human vices like greed and power, desire for power, um, because of those we're changing the world in ways that I think are honestly a little bit irresponsible for now and in ways that we can't forecast and we don't really forecast, all for the sake of environment, I mean um, advancement. So right now, nature can't um, adapt and produce equilibrium as long as humans are the dominant species because we're changing and adapting faster than nature ever intended and no other species or ecosystem can really keep up with us. So, um, yeah, I think what we're doing isn't sustainable with the world. We've all heard the projection that if everyone lived up to the standards like we do in the developed world, we need like six Earths to sustain us all. So my question is, does human advancement as we know it inevitably lead to um, the dooming of the Earth? And will we ever find an equilibrium point in the ecosystem between humans and the rest of the world? So I'm gonna put that last question up here on the whiteboard. I'm wondering if we can sort of like maybe get away from the binary here and maybe that'll help solve the problem. There was this um, mid-century theologian, mid-20th century theologian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr, and he's, you know, uh, one of uh, Barack Obama's idols, actually. And he wrote a whole bunch of books, and one of them was Moral Man in a Moral Society. And what he says is, you know, in that is that we have to just understand the fact that um, uh, morally, the human race does not improve. But technologically and in terms of knowledge, it does improve. In other words, we're with the same problems that we've had. Being Christian theologian, he would say, since original sin. And, you know, uh, that's here to stay. So rather than setting up this uh, dichotomy between um, technology on the one hand, innovation on the one hand, and, um, you know, uh, the environment uh, on the other hand, rather than trying to change human nature, maybe it'll be possible to actually harness innovation in order to actually prevent things like, I assume you're talking about global warming and various other problems as well. And, you know, utilize the, the sort of technologies that we're going to be able to, or that we might be able to use in the future. For example, we're already producing electric cars. We're already, um, uh, you know, uh, doing a variety of things, moving away from coal, for example, 
uh, and moving towards other technologies. So I just want to pose that as a possibility, uh, which would actually make it so that uh, you could harness what human nature actually is, which is to innovate, and at the same time actually prevent the sort of problems that you foresee. Okay. I think in regard to that, um, a lot of what we're doing with like the environment, um, I feel like we're doing that as a remedy to kind of fix what we've already done and not like just the way I was thinking about this issue. I feel like because we're advancing so fast, there's always going to be another issue that comes up. There's always going to be another problem that arises because we try to innovate in a new way. So take like the um, artificial intelligence. Like right now, there's no problem. But as we advance towards that, as we inch towards it, we're thinking about um, how can we improve the technology? Not we, like, There's no way we can possibly forecast every single um, consequence, right? So in my head, there's always going to be those consequences. And because of that, will we ever again find an equilibrium point between humans? and state of earth in in the same vein my thinking is is it going to be necessary for us to actually advance morally and in order to solve things like climate change or are they are we actually able to split them up and say hey uh you know if we just advance enough in technology we can innovate our way out of this thing um my thinking I'm, I'm not, I can't, obviously can't be sure about anything, but my intuition is that we are going to have to find a way to change our outlook and our relationship with the environment um, on an individual level in order to make that happen. I don't know what you guys think about that. I agree. I think in the end of it, every change comes from when each individual makes a decision for themselves, not just society makes a decision because that's not how it plays out um, in reality to make a big difference it would have to come down to every person accepting their accountability for the future I think up until now we didn't have a very long view of our evolution we didn't understand how our actions play out in the grand scheme of things we didn't understand how small we are in the grand scheme of things and now that we realize how minuscule we are as part of evolution and the more we learn about that with you know, research, we're starting to understand the depth, the, the weight of what it means to be human on Earth and the responsibility that we have. Um, these types of you know, mantras of like, you know, save the Earth, save that, save this, you know, it, it was always there. I, I mean, I don't know if always, but it was definitely there for many decades ago. But now more than ever, everyday people, not just hippies, not just people who are in tune with nature, everyday people who live in urban settings are starting to have this conception that we have an accountability for the, envi for the environment. Um, so I do think, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic about that, and I think that like with time we will, maybe in our generation, you know, we're making steps towards that. Um, I'll stop talking now, even though I could go on. Yeah, that's good. Do you guys think that, <clears throat> like, the fact that humans are almost selfish or kind of like they think like okay like we are the, the better species you know what makes us a better species like is it because we're conscious is it because we're more intelligent than other animals it's like how can we compare ourselves to <clears throat> like whales or dolphins for example like what if they were hit long like here on earth like way before us like you know thousands or millions of years ago and like developed into whales because they realized like they don't need everything that we have here they don't need fast cars they don't need speedboats and they eventually develop in these huge things that like just kind of go in the ocean. And I think sometimes like we think we're going to solve a problem. Like how can we foresee that this solution 
actually is going to lead to more problems. So, for example, like if we're going to preserve like nature, like like in Yosemite, like when you guys build fence around it, you are disturbing the natural environment. You know, you're actually affecting the ecosystem there that's going on and like actually hurting it more than preserving it. And the fact that we think that oh, we're actually solving the problem, when in fact like one solution creates a thousand more problems that we had no idea and we think okay like now that we solved the problem like let's like not focus on it and it's not until many years down the line that like after they kind of like add up on top of each other that we realize like oh actually our solution wasn't a solution at all it just made things worse mm-hmm. okay yeah well, on that i feel like it's because we always try to expand into other things niches like like you said about the whales they're content with where they are and they kind of like evolve towards this very specific pathway but humans on the other hand I feel like humanity as a whole has taken the um, saying the world is your oyster a little too literally like we literally we go out into other like realms where I think nature didn't really intend for us to belong and we kind of just impose our um, desires for like you know more resources and um, more advancement on those ecosystems so it's something to consider. Ultimately I think that's what separates us from animals I don't think that you know animals evolved with free will and we're like nah that's like too much responsibility I'm gonna get rid of that I think we all humans essentially are so special because we've been able to step away from the controls of our environment we've been able to manipulate our environment of course that comes with greed but that greed is driven by this like inner need to survive and thrive mm-hmm. and we have the privilege as humans as creatures on this earth to thrive not just survive so ultimately i think we also have a tendency for the common good like our, our natural inherent need to cooperate because we realize that when other people are happy when i have relationships with people who are happy i'm also happy so i think in the grand scheme of things i want to believe that it balances out with the greed mm-hmm. or ever since the beginning of time whenever there's been a uh, innovation has created new problems and whenever the next innovation of course is an attempt to solve those problems so you know if you want to look at it in a certain way you could say okay look certain uh, the fact that uh We've been able to, for example, uh, feed more people uh, through technology and, and harnessing agriculture and agricultural innovation, like the Green Revolution. That's great, but doesn't that leave the population pressures? Well, it certainly does. But we can resolve those questions also in various ways uh, that we can't foresee at the present time. So every innovation actually creates new problems. Every set of problems actually creates new innovations in that way. And I just want to, you know, uh, point to something Rebecca said earlier, which was the, the idea we can change things in terms of not just innovate in terms of technology, but also in terms of things like um, not human nature per se, but perceptions uh, around us. There was a time uh, in the 60s and even into the 70s when you turn on the television, comedians would make dr- uh, jokes about drunk driving, for example. Now, that's totally unheard of now. And the reason that's unheard of was that a group of mothers actually organized a group called Mothers Against Drunk Driving and put a great deal of pressure on, uh, you know, for example, television networks and that sort of thing as well, to look at actually what happens when people go out and drive and drink and drive. And then all sorts of organizational innovations as well. The idea of a designated driver and various other things, which when I was growing up, there was no such thing. You just, you know, did what you did. So along those lines, you can actually innovate in a variety of ways, not just in terms of technology, but also in terms of changing opinions, changing uh, the way people actually perceive the world. Okay. Do you have a concluding thought? Concluding thought. Um, 
don't have to. No, no, not really. I just like this discussion, and I feel like I'm... Again, this is an issue that doesn't really have a solution. It's just like a... It's like a... It's a thought. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes in Thought Lounge, we, uh, instead of snapping or clapping because those are taken by, like, poetry people and, like, everybody else, we just, like, knock to say thank you <laughs> for, for bringing that up. Right? <laughs> um, also, to disturb the, I mean, sorry, I don't know that that's there. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Breaking the fourth wall of it. <laughs> um, does anybody want to go next? Or... I can go. I mean, okay. Um, wait, really quick. I'm going to jot down a few notes on my phone because I, I just... Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but maybe... Could you do it while he's getting started? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 I've been... Uh, I'm a professor of modern Middle Eastern history, and so I've been doing a lot of work now, a lot of interviews, a lot of uh, thought pieces that I've been writing and that sort of thing about what's going on specifically in terms of ISIS, in terms of uh, Syria, in terms of um, uh, if there is actually a solution out of it, and, and the changes that have taken place in terms of ISIS's strategy. It used to be they never struck abroad, now they're striking abroad, and I was trying to figure out exactly why that was occurring. And or whether there's a way of conceptualizing the entire problem of ISIS, Syria, and the change in top tactic in one unit. And what I began to think about was this, that um, ISIS has always been very different from Al-Qaeda as an organization. Uh, Al-Qaeda, of course, wages war against what they call the far enemy, uh, the West, what they, what they look at as a Zionist crusader uh, conspiracy. ISIS, on the other hand, its main function actually has been to reestablish what they consider to be the uh, a domain of Islam, uh, Dar al-Islam, uh, through a caliphate. As a matter of fact, ISIS's ideology is very, very different from uh, al-Qaeda's ideology. ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda has certainly uh, not Welcome to the Thought Lounge um, podcast. Uh, made an a issue Thought Lounge is an in-person, in formatted dialogue with three to six people on the topics they are most passionate about. This week's special guests are UC Berkeley state. Professor of Music David Moroni and UC Berkeley state. Professor of ISIS Political Science Darren Zook. Participants and topics include Professor Moroni on false facts, Emily Kramer on If You Rest, You Rust, Jacob Nicolau on Defining the Object in Sociology, Axel Kramer on Perfect Posture, and Professor Zook on politics of time. That territory, the through a For more information and to sign up, please visit thoughtlounge.org. Enjoy. Real Muslims to be outside of the Islamic community and so therefore fit for killing. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's the second idea that they, they, they've been kicking around. Um, and, you know, combining these two ideas with another one, which is called hijra, which is the idea of migration. People should migrate into this caliphate as well. Now, they've changed tactic, and I was struck by the fact that here is a group that actually controls a territory that is all of a sudden painting a big bullseye on their back. I mean, people know where they are. We don't know where Al-Qaeda people are, but they know where, you know, the territory of ISIS is. And so what I began to think about was, why would ISIS do this? And um, it was funny listening to the Republicans last night in the Republican debate and how, you know, uh, Obama has blown it and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, what I began to actually think about was the idea that um, Obama hasn't blown it, that uh, the war against ISIS so far has been extraordinarily successful, 
that we are not going to be able to completely destroy ISIS overnight, but what we can do is hem it in. They can't expand anymore. They face enemies all over, north, south, east, and west, Turks and Kurds in the north, and uh, the Syrian government in the west, and Shiites in the other two directions. So they can't expand. As a matter of fact, they've been contracting over the last year. So obviously this containment operation and then slowly pushing them back has been working. And it seems to me fairly evident that what ISIS is responding to right now is the fact that they're no longer the baddest badasses on the block. And people are perceiving them now as losers. They're on the defensive. And so what they're doing is they're striking out. And they're striking out now in ways that one would never associate them with striking out. They're striking out in Al-Qaeda-type ways. Al-Qaeda, as I said, wants to destroy the uh, uh, far enemy and doesn't care about the near enemy. What these guys are doing now is they are trying to put themselves back on the map again and doing that, as, uh, doing that by striking out in the West and various other areas so that people will say, look at them as still having uh, skin in the game. So there's, there's that aspect to it. And the other thing I began thinking about was, was Syria. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, John Kerry began this new uh, uh, relaunch of, of negotiations in, in, in Syria. Um, and he brought in all sorts of, you know, people who have been you know, using this as a proxy war. I mean, the Iranians, the Saudis, and so on and so forth, Russians, us, other, West, other people in the West, um, Turks, and, and what have you. And I began to think that there are three things now that actually make this effort actually possible, uh, whereby in the past it was completely fruitless. The first one of those things has been that um, uh, the Americans and the Iranians signed a, a nuclear deal, which broke the ice between the Americans and the Iranians. There's obviously no way that you can solve the Syria crisis unless you bring the Iranians into solving it, because if you keep them out, uh, they're just going to uh, act as spoilers. Uh, there's an old Saudi saying that it's better to have a camel inside your tent pissing out than a camel outside your tent pissing in, which is certainly the case, I think, with the, with the Uranians now. The second thing that's changed the uh, situation fundamentally has been the Russians have gotten involved directly. And this has actually been good for negotiations because um, the Russians are not going to be able to destroy the opposition, but uh, the opposition had been pushing the uh, government in such a way that uh, was very, very dangerous for the government. And this started in the spring of last year. What the Russians have done is they've recreated a stalemate. Um, and there's this idea in political science that a uh, negotiated settlement can only come if you have a uh, mutually hurting stalemate. If everybody perceives that they can't win it on the battlefield, they can't take it all, then they're more likely to negotiate a settlement. And that's what happened since the Russians got involved several months ago. And then the final thing that's happened has been the change in tactic of um, ISIS, which means that the idea now is that you can't just merely hem ISIS in, no politician's going to say that, that what you have to do is destroy it. And the only way of destroying ISIS is to solve the Syrian crisis. And if the United States is concerned about destroying ISIS, which it claims to be, that's the number one priority, and the other countries it certainly is not their number one priority, but it's certainly on the map there as a priority, then obviously they have an incentive to actually uh, resolve the crisis. So anyway, that's that's what I've been thinking about in the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Mm. Can you give just a brief overview of the Syrian crisis? <laughs> How many hours do I have? <laughs> you have uh, five minutes and nine seconds. <laughs> okay. um, 
Syria underwent the same sort of uprising that other places underwent. Uh, the difference with Syria, though, is several fold. Number one, uh, whereas Libya and Yemen can just fall apart and nobody really cares, Syria is in a very dangerous neighborhood. It's in Turkey, borders on Turkey and Israel and Jordan and Iraq for example. And so therefore, um, has not only, we, people don't want it to fall apart, but it's become a proxy war with the Iranians getting involved and the Russians and the West and the Turks and the Saudis and the Qataris and various other groups of uh, countries as well. So this has kept this thing going. So every time one side seems to be winning the war, their, uh, their allies from the outside will just ramp up the assistance, even in the case of the Iranians, putting boots on the ground. Uh, you know, Iranian troops and also um, people from Hezbollah. So this is what's going on right now. I mean, the real overview, what, what people aren't necessarily looking at, is just this immense humanitarian crisis has been created, just immense. You have about half the population displaced, um, uh, either internally or externally. You have refugees now that are flooding into Europe, refugees who have obviously given up on the idea of ever going back to Syria. Uh, you have others who are in camps right now, burdening, uh, for example, the economies of Lebanon, of Turkey, of you know, uh, of Jordan. I mean, the Lebanese example is they have close to two million uh, refugees, uh, uh, or actually one and a half million refugees at, at the present time, uh, between the two, actually. Um, and they have a population of a little over four million people. So think about what that would mean if the United States took in that number of refugees uh, itself. So um, it's, a, it's a burden there. And then there's finally the fact that um, uh, the country can never be rebuilt. You know, people are estimating between 70 billion and 200 billion dollars worth of damage, you know. And then there's also the damage to the social fabric, that the uh, sectarian tensions are higher than ever right now. People, you know, used to get along better. I mean, not necessarily love each other, but, you know, they saw each other in, in the marketplace or in neighborhoods or where have you. Um, now, of course, they're separated out, they're segregated out, and um, people don't get a chance to see other people or go to attend the same schools as other people. So you have that segmentation of society. So it is possible that Syria itself will also will, will never be put back together. As a matter of fact, the former UN ambassador to the Syrian crisis actually said that he saw the only solution as being what he calls Somalization. Syria will become Somalia. In other words, it will issue postage stamps, have a national currency, um, stamp uh, passports, and, and the whole bit, like any other nation. But deep down, everybody knows you know, Somalia, Somalia doesn't, live, doesn't really exist as a nation. It's a political fiction. I tend to agree with the idea that America needs to take responsibility, the entire West needs to take responsibility for the playground that they created in the Middle East, um, resulting partly in the refugee crisis. I want to believe that because when I think about criminals and I think about ISIS and I think about people who act in a certain way and resort to extreme violence that's also backed by idealism, that it's not so different from the the rationale that criminals go through, uh, criminals who, you know, break into a 7-Eleven. Um, I think an idea that I've been thinking about is impoverishment of any sorts, uh, trauma of any sorts um, that leads to impoverishments, whether it's attention or whether it's uh, a roof over your head or food or respect and things like that, leads you to hold on to things that are not really there to fill in this you know, black space of, of your existence. And 
we fill these things with ideals. We think we fill these things with self worth that is um, out of the normal. So that's why you know you go to uh, crime neighborhoods or you just walk through prison and you see that a lot of the conversation, a lot of the conflict is about respect. It's about this intangible concept of self, of how people perceive you, how you think people perceive you. And ultimately that's what you end up holding onto when you don't have the basic needs in your life, when you're impoverished. Um, it's not something we think about. We think people are just criminals because they're bad people. But, you know, take a step back, reduce it a little bit. And why is a human being that's, I believe, born inherently good? How does, how do the circumstances lead to that? I think the entire Middle East and you know, Syria specifically has, they've been under that, you know, from birth. A lot of these people are born into this conflict. They don't know anything else. These are the circumstances of our life, of their lives. And um, this situation can only be solved with an external force since an external force caused it. Right. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I... I would very much agree with Rebecca that, you know, it's not going to be resolved on the ground, that basically it does mean that there's going to have to be some sort of intervention by the international community. Um, you know, the ISIS thing is certainly a good incentive for the international community to get involved. I also uh, don't think that uh, there's much energy in the United States to actually do anything more than what we're doing right now uh, towards the crisis itself, which means basically, unfortunately, stumbling towards negotiations. So that's what we're attempting to to actually do, and I think that there's more of a chance now of actually resolving it through negotiations than ever before, because all those things, bringing Iraq, Iran in, for example, um, uh, making sure that um, ISIS is a, a top priority, and then uh, making making uh, the uh, uh, situation on the ground stalemate, I think is, is something that would um, actually create the sort of conditions for uh, uh, resolution. Alright, thank you. <laughs> Let's go next. Um, so my topic is kindness. Uh, I find like this is a very passionate thing. This is something that my parents really did ingrain in my brain from a very young age. Like no matter what or what I believe in or who I meet or under no circumstance should I ever be unkind to somebody because I have no right to do so. Um, I looked up the definition of kindness and it says the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. And I find that <clears throat> there are a couple issues with this. Um, the first is being that what are, what are other people's definitions of kindness? Um, so I'm going to open up the floor real quick. Uh, just tell me what you think kindness means to you outside of this. Uh, do you want to start with that? Sure, um, I think it means being treated with the common decency that you would, or like treating others with the common decency that you would respect, I mean, expect to be treated with. So again, very uh, golden rule-esque for me. I think kindness is selflessness. Being able to step outside of yourself, recognize that there's a worthy human being next to you. I would agree with both these points. I mean, they, they sort of like round out the sort of definition from the two sides. I'd say it's being able to try to see yourself in someone else. And so, um, when I took an LS class with uh, LS team, Professor Phelan, learned about like altruistic behavior, and I think like that is kind of like sort of like what kindness is. And so it's like not everybody has it inside of them to want to go out out of their way, um, in some cases to 
you know, be nice to someone that they meet, like, because, you know, you and I are strangers, it's like, if I'm going out of my way to help you with my resources, like, that might increase the quality of my life, and, you know, we're all here to, like, thrive, and, like, it might be out of, like, our selfish needs, but at what point um, can we, like, not just own up to the responsibility that, like, we are no longer these primal creatures, you know, like, when you were talking about earlier, like, we'll be able to find, like, the equilibrium point between humans and the natural state of the earth, it's like we have already pulled ourselves so far away from what Earth is that like we are like almost like visitors. You know, like we see all these animals, we see these trees, and they're not visitors. They are just here, part of Earth. Um, so that distinction between us and Earth and everything that is in Earth, I feel like kind of limits our ability to be kind to others. Um, so another thing is like what someone might consider an act of kindness might be different for somebody else um, so at what point if I were to lend you a pen you know you might not think that's like a very kind act but that might be the only pen that I, I have you know like you, you don't understand what's going on um, you know I could have come from a very poor background but just offering that pen could mean the world to me and then you accidentally leave after class take it with you and you know how does that make that person feel who gave you everything when like you had no idea so kindness is kind of like a very difficult thing for humans to understand because how am I supposed to know everything that you are where you come from like in a split second that I meet you um, I one of my other passions is music so I love to go to a lot of uh, different music festivals and I find that you know, the ones that are, like, really over, like, not overrated, but, like, mainstream, that try and bring, like, the masses of the crowds that definitely just, like, everything's overpriced. Like, people, like, all want to go for the same thing, but, like, they take advantage of, like, you know, yeah, you want to buy a Coachella ticket, I'm going to, you know, I see you sell it for, like, $300, like, I'm going to buy it specifically so I can sell it to you for $600 and make money off it just because I know you want to go. Take advantage of the fact, like, of your passions, of your interests and things like that. So I've been to a variety of things, like, you know, from, um... Music festivals have been like like over sixty thousand people to like some that have been like to less than three thousand in like very small remote areas uh, in the middle of nowhere, and I find that the people who go out there to like really like in these barren areas like in the coldest of like winters um, just come with like this idea that like you know everybody kind of carries their own weight everybody should be self sufficient everyone should like leave it better than what they found. So they, like, kind of have, like, looser rules. They don't have, like, such hard, concrete things. Like, they kind of let people just be themselves instead of trying to impose these ideas into people's heads because, like, we all do come from different backgrounds. Like, not all of us, we may have originated from, like, you know, a specific, um, like, the species before us, like, evolved into what we are today. But, like, that's not the case anymore. Like, some people never leave the place that they're from, from birth. And that, like, really constrains or, like, creates, like, this little island of people that, like, you know, now they're starting to become their own species. And we're not seeing it because, you know, we're only here for such a short period of time. But if we continue to, like, create these boundaries and borders and, like, people don't move or don't, you know, interact with each other, like, you know, someday we might turn into different species as different from, like, us from a butterfly. Um, so... My next uh, thing is, how can we um, 
spread the idea of kindness. How can you go about each day and, you know, try and change someone's life, like, and no matter, like, what sort of interaction you have with someone, like, whether it be your waitress or, you know, some of your, like, a maid or, like, you know, someone, like, a police officer, just by, like, talking to them, like, in, like, the very few um, moments you have with them. Uh, I find that some of the craziest people I meet are the ones that I just, like, actually take the time to, like, listen to and, like, under- like genuinely understand. Um, like, the other day, like, literally yesterday, I kind of, um, you know, left class without a plan, and I saw someone painting on the floor, and I was like, hey, like, this person's taking time out of their day, like, they probably don't want to be here, um, let me go check it out, like, let's go see what it is. And I ended up meeting Axel over here, <laughs> and now I'm here, like, talking, uh, and, like, you guys, and it's crazy how things end up, and, like, I just really want to preach, and, like, ta- like the kindness, I feel like, would help solve like a lot of our problems because like it would just erase the problems that we create like mm-hmm. we keep trying to solve these things these things these things but like they're only problems if we like think they're problems and um like you're talking about like people have like, they're like what they believe like what they what they are their creation of uh, their ident- their self-identity through their interaction with others and no matter what sort of beliefs you have or beliefs I have, when I talk to you, it doesn't matter. You can believe whatever you want, and it doesn't affect me. You can believe that, you know, Pluto is a planet, and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really, like, matter, like, where, or, like, it's not going to ruin my day. You know, it's not going to like, if you believe, like, you know, the things that ISIS believes, or Al-Qaeda, or, like, Christians, or um, Muslims, or anything, like, it doesn't matter. Like, why are we trying to solve, like, the... The question of like where do we come from like why do we have to explain things I think that kind of like makes us want to like it, it blinds us from like our true purpose which I think is just living you know butterflies go around and fly from here and there and you know they might get eaten by a bird and that's it like, <laughs> like we don't know if butterflies are like sad that their butterfly friend just got eaten by a bird <laughs> um and I think that we should be the same way. Um, I heard an interesting thing the other day talking about the idea of death. It's like, why do we see death as like a punishment when it's like every single day it's like, it's, we're surrounded by death. It's like, that's just how life goes. And um, I think it's something that like we don't understand. It's something that we fear. And like, because of that, people, people, you know, want to explain things or want to be right. But like, why do we have to explain it? Learning is such a beautiful thing, and I, I believe I'm a strong um, believer in having like a strong student mentality. Like after I graduate, like I'm not going to want to stop learning because I think that's when you get old, like when your brain stops working because then you're just stuck, and then you know you get stuck in the past. Like it's always about staying current about future ideas and like you know expanding like things like this, like meshing up, and, like you know changing it up. Like what if everything we thought was wrong? Um, I know I kind of sidetracked there, but. It all goes back to the act of kindness, which is kind of like, almost like ignorance is bliss. Um, so, like, why do we think that, you know, we're advancing society when we're creating these new technological advances? When we're more than self-sufficient, we're just like a flip phone and like maybe like, um, like a horse or two. <laughs> just like, as long as we have like food in our bellies and, you know, some nice clean water, like why do we need all these new things? And it's because these people want to be correct, they want to, like, let others know, like, I'm right, I'm this, I'm that, and it's like, who cares? 
go ahead and be right. Like, if that means you're going to go through all the troubles of, like, you know, being like, upset or angry or, like, makes you want to hurt someone, like, why would you pursue those ideals or try to force others to believe you? Like, I really, really like your sweatshirt because it says, I'm not God, but I'm something similar. And I think, like, everyone is kind of like that. I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all are. Like, we're all made out of the same stardust that, you know, this table's made out of, like, this pen. And just because we change it into something else, like, we might go cut down a tree, you know, process it, and now it's, like, this nice wooden table. But, you know, we've got one minute 30 left. Okay. Um, I'll just open it up now. Uh, any ideas? You guys want to talk a little bit more about kindness? Okay, super quick. Um, this actually does strike me. Like, this kind of relates to something I was thinking about, too. So I'm from the Bay Area, and 15 minutes away is Berkeley, like hippie town. So for me, I've always that's heard of... That's a stereotype. You know, that's a stereotype. But no, the hippie culture is very alive and well there, and I think a lot of people dismiss it as, oh, these crazy, like, anarchist hippies. But if you actually take the time to, like, just understand where they're coming from, like, those are the nicest, kindest people you'll ever, under- like, you'll ever meet, because... What they've done is they kind of just like done away with the disillusionment of society. They stopped thinking. Like there's no re they don't see the need to be homogeneous with everyone else. So they kind of just like live their own lives based on the ideals of um individuality. And I think that's beautiful. And I feel like people don't really respect that enough because again, society just pushes them off and marginalizes them as the hippies, the crazy ones. <coughs> I just think it's interesting because again, I think I feel like some of the people who are like open-minded and free-willed like that are the kindest of them met. I think uh, you don't have to be a hippie to have like, an open mind like that. I think to summarize what you were talking about, you've sort of um, made traveling, like physical traveling, but also being willing to consider other people's opinions and realizing your yours are not that, you know, like the truth, all ultimately lead to kindness because you're able to see other people, just like you asked the question at the beginning, you're able to like be in other people's shoes, you're able to realize that other people have experiences that are just as worthy as you. Um, so, but you said, you know, why can't we just give up our ideals? Um, you know, then I guess I would have to ask you, like, what are we going to base our identities on then? Because we have no access to the future. Shit. <laughs> maybe we could have, like, we'll put maybe one more minute on it just to hear what... I want to hear, yeah, I want to yeah, hear what you guys have to say on that. Well, um, following on this, um, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, as a professional educator, I have to say I can't get a lo- go along with the statement that ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, I'm professionally required to intervene on that one. Um, but there's a couple of paradoxes that you raised that are actually very, when you were talking, I was actually very fascinated, you know, and it stirred stuff in my mind. For example, you say sometimes uh, kindness um, is generated by self-interest or, you know, it's in your self-interest to be kind. Um, which raises the issue, it's, it's sort of paradoxical, can kindness be generated by self-interest? Or is kindness that is generated by self-interest actually kindness? Or is it actually something something else? It's got some sort of like, you know, functional um, aspect to it as well. The other thing is, you know, you brought up, you know, Al-Qaeda and all this other stuff. And I'm wondering whether or not kindness, as you're describing, is only a, a possible in a safe environment. In other words, that generally, um, in the world of nature, let's say, or in uh, any other, you know, uh, Hobbesian world, uh, whether or not kindness is actually something that can actually be done, uh, or is it easy for us sitting here in, you know, the warmth of um, UCLA and, um, you know, having our needs taken care of, 
to be kind in that way. Um, I guess I'll just say a quick thing. I, I like that discussion about whether kindness can actually be generated by self-interest or, um, you know, if it's just like in your self-interest to be kind. I don't know. Basically, it's just sort of like this infinite loop of whether of which one's the case. And I think it comes mostly from like your cultural upbringing, which one you sort of like the chicken or the egg, uh, which one you decide is where it begins. Um, yeah, and I, I just heard a lot in, in what you're talking about, uh, basically about listening to other people's needs, to actually lending your ear and being malleable yourself, basically. Like when you said you went to the music festival and it sounded like the main point of kindness that you took away from that, like the smaller one, was that people were able to, you know, do their own thing. Um, and I think that, that that's what it requires. It, it requires people to be able to say, okay, that's different. It's a new thing, but that's okay. Like, let's see how we can work together now. Let's find a common ground. Now let's build up together. Anyways, I can go on. Thank you. I want to go next. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I've been reading this book. It's called The Wisdom of, Psy of the Psychopaths. And I've been thinking about this for a really long time. Uh, but this book especially just, like, said the point that I've been thinking, which is psychopaths are just real people that function just like us, only a little better or a little worse. They um, exist on a spectrum. And in fact, all of us exist on a spectrum, on the same spectrum of psychopath, psychopathy. Is that how you say it? Psychopathy. Psycho psychopathy. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, we all exist on the spectrum, and what a psychopath really is is the um, certain uh, hitting certain points on. On, on, on different levels of the spectrum, basically different personality traits, different things that, um, the way that we exist in this world. Uh, for example, um, psychopaths are more self-interested. They have a motivation to get ahead in life and they're willing to step over people to do it. Most of the time, we don't think about these people as psychopaths. We think about them as assholes. Like, they're just, you know, like, really successful business people, right? And that's who a lot of psychopaths are, by the way. Um, and that's and that's really what it comes down to. Like, there's this there's this test that can test your, your how psychopath you actually are. And, you know, there's been many tests. Like, having people take in this test, and you can see that a lot of psychopaths are either really successful business owners, CEOs, etc. Or what you think about when you think about a psychopath you know, someone who murders children and keeps them in uh, his fridge and yada yada yada. And they probably sit in prison and they're, you know, on the margins of society. They're also at the very top of society. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, the, the only difference between them is just their social skills, basically. They're able, you know, like successful business owners are just able to pretend that they like people long enough to step over them. They're able to have certain motivations like money or greed, whereas other psychopaths just want it. They're just attracted to, you know, kids and they, whatever. It's, it's you know, it's a different, but it's, it's like this natural human condition. And psychopaths have been within humanity for a really long time. That's, you know, the greatest leaders of countries. That's what history is made up of, you know, people that have some degree of... 
I just had a question. Like, I was wondering, what do you think underlies each of those sort of, I mean, you're saying like, oh, a lot of CEOs are psychopaths or like murderers are psychopaths, but yeah. I wouldn't say that like, that's what characterizes a psychopath. So what is that, what is that thing? That those like personality it? traits? Yeah. Okay, so I'll find it. But the idea is basically that there are these different personality traits. And this is what this book is about. It's the wisdom of psychopaths. It's what we can learn from psychopaths. It's how psychopaths are not just, you know, on the margins. And actually, they're really successful. And we can, you know, like, adapt. I have no idea where I put it. I'm just, like, scrolling through it. But... It sounds like manipulation. Like ability to manipulate. Yeah, sorry. I'm, like, blanking out on it. Um, ability to manipulate. Um, or perhaps the ability... It seems like a goal-orientedness. Like, it doesn't matter yes, whether the guy's trying to get a more money maybe that's his singular goal or if he just has a real love for killing people but whatever it is he's able to like empathize his way into getting that thing but at the same time hold on reserve right. the fact that he actually doesn't give a right. darn and that's the difference between psychopaths and real people that they don't have this ability for kindness for actual true empathy but they are master disguisers of empathy I kind of value some of those things, though, in terms of and like being able to accomplish yeah. tasks and, and we you're all able do. to just like yeah. totally see what the best route to that uh, to accomplishing that goal is without being distracted by caring about other people, which distracts us all the time. Or being able to just care. I don't know. It's scary. But so, so that's that's the idea. Enough. The idea is that like these are values of you know like seven efficient people. Books like that, like psychopaths. Um, and, you know, an interesting thing is, like, they looked at the brains of psychopaths after they died. And a lot of times you can't see, like, dysfunctions on the brain. That means that, like, a dead brain looks the same on a psychopath as it does on other people, which means that psychopaths just have different tweaks in the way their brain works while it's alive. They just, you know, their brains just travel a little bit differently. So... I'd like to hear from Miguel on the... Uh <laughs> that that previous discussion <laughs> about well maybe maybe being psycho you know <laughs> being a psychopath isn't such a bad thing because you can orient yourself towards a goal and and you know accomplish that goal by stepping all over other people. Yeah, like what makes kindness like the right idea? Like you know being nice to each other just so we can all get along. But like in nature, animals of the same species don't always get along. You know you see dogs fighting all the time or wolves. Like they don't really care. They just trying to get by like there's a balance to everything it's not like we were born just altruistic or just kind or just selfish there's a balance of everything you know you're very altruistic to your family members you're not altruistic to the you know people next door because you have a certain you know agenda which is you want to survive and thrive so you know these people just i don't know if you really guys have seen like american psycho that was like mm-hmm. the first thing that came to mind yeah. and um yeah just the way you know, he does kind of put on this front and you have no idea, like, he's going about his day, like, you know, returning his, his movies <laughs> and things like that. And, you know, at the end, like, you don't really know if he, like, actually did kill everybody or not. And, you know, how is it that, like, you know, a person that we consider psycho, it's like, how do you know if they're going on, like, if they're psycho? What if we're the psychos, like, just know. trying to be, like, normal? <laughs> like, what if they're, like, what if they are, like, the very few remaining people who, like, actually get it, that, like, they can just do whatever they want because, like, you can like who's gonna stop you and it's like up until they get stopped by someone else until someone intervenes um they're just living life like going back to isis um you know psychopaths like throughout history ancient history were always like the groups of 
you know like very very way back when always the group of like guys or just like people that just were able to plow their way and just kill everybody in their way and that's what they were successful for and there's like a ton of you know like ancient stories about you know oh the evil you know like people like in the bible and like in actual history and these were those people that were just a skill you know for their own good and um they're just savages so there's a difference there though between those people who are like trying to kill to for because it was part of their culture it was part of what was seen as good like it was socially normal to do that and respected versus people whose like singular pleasure or goal in life is to go kill people like in a society that doesn't the only difference difference is like whether you have like other people doing it with you then uh yeah so it seems like basically the thing that we said that makes somebody a psychopath then is their lack of caring what the group says is good like what we value is empathy and saying like in at least in this like setting right here we we'd say hey it's bad like all five of us would probably agree it's bad to just go slice jim's head off you know um, I would concur. <laughs> uh, but that's because we all like very much value this this empathy. Like, there's a lot like a lot of reasons why I should do that. But um, in another society, maybe that just doesn't value that. Although I can't really imagine one because it doesn't seem very helpful to sur- like you said, surviving just and thriving. It might be normal, but then so the really sick, the sick ones, the psychopathic ones, are the ones on the end of the spectrum that just don't fall in line, basically. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, from what I've read, you know, this spectrum is sort of like an infinite loop, and there's a loop of like all these, uh, I guess, different values of personality, and there's psychopaths here, and there's the really super amazing, compassionate, like monks over here. And they're not here, separated, but they're very, very close. The only difference is, you know, just like a few tweaks. So in that infinite loop, then I think we all fall in that spectrum. When we're bringing it into a group, I think it's just like a different conversation, though. Which is why I don't know if we should, you know, include ISIS in this. Because it's it's just a different operation. When you're like, as an individual, when you have other people that share these ideals, and you're like a belonging to a certain group. I don't know. I haven't thought about it that way. They are empathizing, sorry. No, I, I, my attitude was, uh, or what I was thinking about was, um, I mean, two things. The word evil came up and, you know, psychopathology and that sort of stuff at the same time. And the question is, doesn't that sort of like block an understanding if we sort of like use these terms to, to identify other people, whether psychopathic or, or what have you? I mean, for example, uh, there's a logic to what people in ISIS do. I mean, I try to explain it in terms of things like, you know, building up this caliphate and so on and so forth. Um, obviously, there are people who have joined, some, some of the Americans, for example, who have joined, who are, have been noted for their criminal behavior beforehand, uh, who have been outside society, who can't get along with people, um, who are you know, usually unemployed and that sort of stuff. They might be attracted for some psychological reason. But there's also a logical reason to join as well. So I'm wondering whether or not using concepts like psychopath or um, uh, evil is something that actually uh, blocks understanding that evil rather than enables us to actually understand. Mm. I feel like evil is one of those labels we just place on a certain phenomena just so we can, again, label it as something and not really try to understand. Because again, if you see the logic behind something, the rationale behind why someone does something, 
is anything really that evil? I, I mean, okay, yeah, maybe some things are, but again, to the person in question, it's just a different uh, worldview and how they see, um, like, their function in society. Then, like, what they might see as, or what we might perceive as evil, as labeled by us, they might just see as their natural duty in the world. It's also a very religious term, um, and I'm not quite sure that we'd, we'd benefit from actually applying it. You think about, for example, uh, the way it's been applied now, or it's being applied now. I mean, George W. Bush called you know, al-Qaeda evildoers, um, and they're motivated by pure evil. Well, they're not exactly all motivated by pure evil. I mean, what they, in a religious sense, in our religious sense, and in an Islamic religious sense also, what they are doing is they are perpetrating evil. But on the other hand, there is a certain logic there to what they're trying to do. And when you begin to understand that logic, what you could actually do is more effectively counter that logic. But if you're trying to just lump it together in this sort of like, you know, uh, biblical term of, of evil, then uh, what you're basically left with is no options, no understanding. Say, I see a very deep connection between like the this discussion and the kindness discussion about being able to, the value of being able to see ourselves in other people's shoes and not just say, it, basically the end of a of a good dialogue is when somebody lumps someone in as being evil for some assumption they have, whether it be that they believe in the Christian faith or the other. Um, sorry. I agree. Just like, no, you're evil. I'm not going to think about it anymore. Yeah. I'm just going to label yeah. you as evil, and that's it. That's that's the like non-ending ending. People throw around the term evil as if it's some like objective truth that can be like um that someone can have that like designated upon them but again evils it's just about like a matter of perspective i think that evil is like beauty it's like now the beholder <laughs> all right thank you that's a good way to wrap up okay my turn um myself on the clock do you have so, to do this for every one of these things you organize yeah Okay. You must be going through all these different thoughts every week. A lot of different. (laughs) So the one that I wanted to bring, actually, I tried to do this one in a thought lounge yesterday, but I didn't get around to it. So this is try number two. I had an idea for this thing called a conscious use of technology manifesto. (laughs) And the, the idea is that I see a problem in the way that there's in the lack of attentiveness to how people use their technologies. Um, Basically, how they use their devices, social media platforms, and messaging apps. I just see, I really see unclear expectations between people of how often they check certain platforms. For example, like how often I would expect you to reply to an email. Maybe you're the kind of guy who's like, every two days I'm gonna go through all my email. But maybe I'm the kind of person who checks it like every hour or so. That's like my main platform. And that might cause some friction. Similarly with like Facebook or with messaging or say that you are, uh, especially in text messaging and in romantic relationships is a good example. Um, there's, it's all about timing. You know, if I text you like, hey, exclamation point, and then the girl doesn't text back for, you know, four or five hours, then maybe for me that would seem like, oh my God, my God doesn't like me or something. But there's no communication of that. It's all implicit. Um, so that was one, one problem I see is like uh, how much people check certain platforms 
the language that they use on certain platforms. So like basically if you're able to be terse or not terse, like in order for us to convey neutrality via text message, you basically have to add lots of exclamation points and emojis. Whereas in Gmail or in email, you don't necessarily have to do that. There's like a sort of different language. Um, and the last thing that I don't see people having like a clear vision of and conscious awareness of is how they use, for what purpose they use their different devices and platforms. Like maybe some people want to use Facebook purely for the cause of promoting and supporting causes and maybe making connections between people and networking. Whereas other people want to use it to sort of feel like they're part of a sense of a community or showcasing and interacting with their personal their personal lives. So these are these are a few of the issues I see with the ways that we use technology. But I came up with this idea for that might be able to sort of solve a few of them. And I want to hear your guys' thoughts on it. So I call it the Cut Manifesto, the Conscious Use of Technology Manifesto. And what it is, my original idea for it is you have a document linked in the signature of your email at the footer that says, this is my conscious use of technology manifesto. And what it describes are basically four, there's four parts to it. The first one is the expectation section. So you have a one sentence description on just your usage of each of the social, or each of the platforms that you use. I'm gonna check my text messages all day, every day. Um, like if you really wanna get a hold of me, you call me, or maybe I don't text text messages, except after like eight o'clock at night, I just stop, turn off my phone create that space. The second part is purpose. So have people elaborate on why they use each of their technologies the way they do. Um, so maybe for email, the reason I use it is to be, I want to be as brief and concise as possible. I don't expect humor back in it. I use it just for sharing of information and organizing things. But for Facebook, you can expect of me that I use it in a different way. And the last two parts would be like a pact, which I was thinking would be good to get written by some like a professional or as a collaborative effort, which is a statement stating the need for such a, for, 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 uh, for us to be more attentive of how we use these technologies. And um, the last part would just be sort of like, if you came across this manifesto on somebody else's Facebook bio or wall or Twitter bio, where to find a template to make your own. Um, and and then the marketing side of it, like how would you actually make this work and like make it an understandable thing? Um, I think it would be pretty obvious, like it would, it would still work if it was only a few people doing it. Like even if I was the only one who wrote one of these things and put it at the footer of my email and somebody clicked on it and they might find it interesting and I'd at least have reflected for myself how I use these things is half the, about half the goal of this thing. And um, the other marketing idea I had was to make a page actually on social media platforms that was basically, do not like this page unless you have, until you've actually made this thing yourself and posted it on your bio on every social media platform that you do. Um, it's a shame that there's no like system built into our platforms already that has a place for this kind of thing that says, I'm not gonna check this. I'm like, like whenever I'm with friends, you just you're just not gonna hear from me at the dinner table. It's gonna be off. Um, okay, that's that's the general idea. I just rambled. I don't have it super 
super well thought out, but I want to hear what you think about it. Um, I think like, so we have the various forms of uh, social media platform. I always have my phone in my hand. Um, <clears throat> I feel like I love talking to people. I'm very well connected um, just with people I like to stay in touch with that I meet across the world that I feel like people like are like, oh, you're always on your phone, you're always on your phone. But like, it's always like now, this is like the new mode of like connectedness. Like I don't have to go travel halfway across the world to go talk to my friend and just use WhatsApp. Or <clears throat> if I want to reach like a large pool of people, it's like, why do I have to explain to them why, like what I use it for? Like sometimes I like change, like so yeah, sometimes I'm texting someone and it'll be like very informal using a lot of abbreviations just because I'm just lazy, I don't hate them, I'm just like, whatever. But other times I'll just go in full depth, like, you know, using correct punctuation and everything because, like, I'm, I want to get something clear across them. But, you know, like, I can go back and forth. And sometimes I talk with people on, like, eight different forms of uh, social media platforms. And we have these different conversations, and we're still, like, in the same room. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know, I think I just get to learn more about people in those different ways um, because we're all so different. Um, and how each of these apps are kind of created, like just how each phone is like, you know, customizable. You can get your own case, you can get your own thing. And it's like, they give you the tools to like do something, but you know, how you use it is like really up to you. Like some people use Snapchats and like only, you know, do selfies and like all day or like, you know, take Snapchats of their dogs. Like I love taking Snapchats of my dogs, but other people use it as like a, a polling method. Like they think outside of the box, they like, all right, like take a screenshot of this next photo if you like, like agree with this or disagree with this, like, and they're just like really like transforming this app without even doing anything to it. And you know, how are you like, you know, I can come up with like a, a million different ways to create, you know, like build things on top of it, like, and people might not be able to understand that. People might um, just get confused, and I, I don't. So what I'm hearing from you is that you you say that in it's useful to you to be able to embrace the overlap of the different ways that you use one single platform. I think that what I'm trying to say is I like the whole like no rules thing. Like if I want to text my mom something or send her a picture, like I don't even have to send words. I just send an image, send a video. It's like I can send a video on Snapchat. I can send a video like using my phone's like messaging thing. Like it's like whatever I needed to do, I'll just like use one of the apps I have to like get that message across or get that like idea across. Okay. I like that a lot, but do you feel like that ever does create, again, like Axel said, friction between you and someone else who doesn't really understand that? Because like, I see where you're coming from. Like humans, we're, we're adaptive. We change um, the way we use a certain medium based on like our intentions or like what we want to do with it. But again, do you feel like in your own experience, because I know I do the same thing. Like if I'm writing a text to one person, I might reply in a completely different fashion to the same person in an hour. And then the next text I'll follow up in like 15 seconds. So do you feel like, but like, I don't, I don't do it because I'm trying to diss the person. I just do it because, you know, different intent. Do you feel like for me, that's kind of created some friction with a few people. They ask, oh, why don't you respond to this? Why don't you respond to that? So in that sense, I do see a need for like a manifesto and I really like the idea. But again, like, I feel like it's kind of a balance of like projecting to others. Like, this is what I want to do. This is like kind of who I am. And also I am adaptive and I'm not the same all the time. Yeah, it's definitely created some friction. Um, I, I remember having a, like, a discussion with my parents because, you know, I text my sister and uh, there was always like this thing where it was like, why are you mad at me? Why are you like, you know, so upset? I was just oh, like, you're just my sister. I think just talking to you very informally, it's like, you know, a thing. Um, but like, you know, it creates like these big fights and it's like, I'm not trying to fight with you or like, I'm not ignoring you. It's just like, 
what also gives someone the right to, you know, pop into your life, like, you know, right here, and, you know, expect you to give them, like, the time of day. It's like, you know, even if I'm not busy, like, what if I want to relax? Like, yeah, I'm texting you right now. It's like, if I read it, it's like, okay, like, I know what I want to say. Like, sometimes I respond <laughs> to a text, but, like, in my head, and kind of forget to oh. send it. <laughs> like, I was, like, thinking, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll just, like, you know, someone will, like, talk to me, or I'll look up, and I just, like, forget about it. And then, like, open up another one, and, and just, like, I'm like, yeah, like, why are you ignoring me? I'm like, um, not ignoring you. Like, you know, if you really want to come up to me and tell me something, like, you will, you know, stand in front of me and, like, tell me these things. But it's like, imagine if someone did that, like, how, like, not, like, annoying, but, like, how just, like... It would seem confrontational. It would yeah, seem like, out of place. It's like, look at me, look at me. So I guess my call to action here is, like, we need people to outright say that like and outright start a conversation around that and read other people's conversations around it um and otherwise like like you said you know you get a text from anywhere in the world at any moment demanding your attention and that's not something that is healthy i don't think for a human mind to get to be that's like scattered necessarily i think you lose something and that's why i would say like the, the whole overlap of social media platforms, like I kind of want to make a divide for my own. Like I would want to use a Twitter just to get, you know, the mission statements from all different points, like basically the news for me. But then Facebook, I want to use it as like a way to see, maybe keep in touch with friends that one day in the future I'll get to see in person. Um, but then if there's a huge overlap and huge scatter, like, and I'm always being demanded on like notifications. Then it it's, it makes me go a little wacko. I would say just turn off your notifications. Um, it's a very it seems like very like just you know simple solution. But like there's times where I'll turn on my like vibrate for text. Other times it's like I don't get anything unless I open up the app. Like no badges, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I kind of just like I don't know. I try to be clear and transparent with people. But I also, I don't know, like to have um, a little mysterious air of like, you know, whatever I'm going to say, like, you can think whatever you want because like, you know, no matter what I'm thinking or like the words I use to describe it, like the, whatever you take from it is going to be whatever you process in your own head. Mm. Do you guys mind if I put one more minute on it so I can hear your guys, I'd like to hear from both you. of your thoughts from it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's sort of ironic that I'm part of this conversation because I'm the only person in Los Angeles County that doesn't own a cell phone. So I'm not on Twitter, Facebook, or anything like that. I do do email. But I think there's a wonderful irony here that we're here having this conversation about social media, and what we're saying is that social media actually blocks communication uh, in, in many ways. Uh, you know, for example, you know, are you really having a dialogue, a discussion, a conversation with somebody when, for example, um, uh, you? You know, or on Facebook, uh, or have you know, look at them on Facebook. I mean, what is what is really the discussion that's going on there? I mean, even that example that you gave about email. I mean, my favorite example was that uh, one of our staff people uh, did something nice for me, um, and uh, uh, she sent me an email which said thank you at the end of it, and I wrote an email that had no comma thank you. Okay, and she wrote back saying, "Why are you angry with me? Why did you write no thank you?" It doesn't aid understanding that way. And the other thing that doesn't aid understanding is that people have to really learn how to observe their commas. Um, but so I'm just wondering if, if 
people also have this idea of whether or not uh, this thing has sort of like taken over communications, taken over our lives in that way, which has actually blocked us from being able to communicate more effectively with each other, sitting down in a room and having a conversation like this. Oh yeah, I think uh, technology is a big part of our lives. I think it's uh, smart to think and call to action anything that has to do with, you know, how we use this thing that's become a part and you know we have the ability to think about it we have the ability to contemplate the way we use it in the end of it um you guys have both brought up really good points the manifesto is a really good idea to kind of start a conversation about consciousness At the same time we we don't know exactly how we use it we just use it we're using it we're learning as we go we're figuring it out um I've definitely felt, I think, the way that you felt when you thought about this idea of just being demanded, like, that I command my attention to everything and things that I don't care about, usually. Um, the hard thing to do is to log off. In the end of the day, like, you always have the choice. Um, and I think we forget that. You have the choice to not have Facebook. You have the choice to, sure, you know, when you're having a business and sure, when you're, you know, networking, like, it's just a medium of existence. So I don't think that we should not have them. but. The choice of when to log off and when to check it is up to you. Yeah. Thank you to all who participated in this Thought Lounge. To sign up for a Thought Lounge in your area, please visit thoughtlounge.org. Till next time, good thinking always.